Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, June 16th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, what is going on, my man? Matt, hey, not too much. Not too much, my man. Uh, just hanging in there. Uh, weekend of weather that is not too exciting, um, but hopefully it'll, it'll clear up tomorrow or uh, Sunday, so. Yeah, hopefully Sunday's nice. We got a big Father's Day coming up. Your second as a, a dog dad, my first as a cat dad. Yes. And uh oh god, a lot of years of of being a dad to our our real dads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no question. And it is weird to be a uh, a father now of one. Uh you're a father of two. It's it's I'm a father it's of pretty two. crazy where we've gotten in our in our uh, 28th year here. Uh insert Paul Rudd. Who, who would have thought? <laughs> Not me <laughs> or whatever it is. Look at us. Look at us. What is that from? Is that forgetting Sarah Marshall? I thought it was from like Hot Ones. Oh, uh, that might be it. Yeah, that might be it. At the risk of us not knowing more references, let's get in and do this podcast. for our quick hits for the week and the first one is by gina martinez and sarah lynch baldwin of cbs news and they write maps satellite images show canadian wildfire smoke enveloping parts of u.s with unhealthy air so in the u.s the east coast ohio valley mid-atlantic and midwest felt the impacts of canadian wildfires last week as unhealthy air quality was experienced throughout the country this is something that we alluded to on last friday's show but like we promised we wanted to let everything develop and you know, you, you don't come to this show for here's what's going on currently. You you come here for here's what happened. So we wanted to let things play out. Apologies for being a little late on this one, but we wanted to, you know, really give you the full picture. So some cities in the U.S. experienced school cancellations due to air quality concerns. Sporting events were postponed and flights were disrupted. A low pressure system helped improve air quality and disperse that haze and that smoke from the sky over the weekend, providing some much needed relief from that air pollution. Wildfire smoke can deeply penetrate the human body and specifically the respiratory system because the particles it produces are about 30 times smaller than a piece of human hair, according to the Weather Channel's Stephanie Abrams. This is the result of hundreds of out of control wildfires across Canada after high temperatures and drought has led to ideal conditions for a wildfire in much of the country. Canada's wildfire season goes from May to October, but the article points out that it is rare for this country to see this much damage so early on. So a couple things that I want to bring up here. Um, the first one is like the least important thing that we're going to talk about. Did you see that one picture of Aaron Judge jog uh, jogging off the field at Yankee Stadium? And it's just like orange behind him. Yes. It was so eerie. And if you haven't seen it and you're listening to this podcast right now, just just look up something like Aaron Judge Wildfire and I guarantee yeah. you'll see a picture of him jogging off the field. It looks like Interstellar. It really does, dude. Yeah. I was going to say uh The Martian, but yeah. Well, in Interstellar there's that one scene where like they're playing baseball. Oh, yeah. In that yeah. dusty f Yeah, exactly. So, this is Oh my god, I forgot about that scene. Yeah. It's like so so eerie 
kind of like a life imitates art sort of moment. Um, and, and unfortunately, this is something that we're probably going to see a lot more of, um, hopefully not to the point where it becomes normal or we become desensitized to it. But we do need to be prepared for decreased air quality due to wildfire smoke as drought increases and as wildfires getting out of control become more prevalent. Because in certain regions, we're going to see a lot more intense storms. In others, we're not going to see rain as often. So that rain yeah. that would normally put out an out of control wildfire might not come in as frequently. Yeah, this is, this is, it's been rough, honestly. Like, it's weird that we have gotten the brunt of it here on the, the East Coast. And like, I saw this picture on Twitter of like this dude in, in Seattle and he was like, yeah, it's a beautiful day today. Like, just like trees and mountains behind. And I was like, wow, you're so lucky. But um, definitely scary because I, I've been having like headaches all week and I, I don't know what it's from. I'm not blaming the wildfires. I don't want to think, I don't, I don't think it's that. But it's been weird. I've felt like weird kind of all week and um, just a tough situation for everyone involved. And I give all the credit in the world to those those firefighters in Canada. And I know there was a team uh, that came in from even South Africa that mm-hmm. that was there and um, and brought some help as well. So shout out to those men and women. So something, something you brought up there that I just want to highlight, you said, I don't want to blame the wildfires. That kind of segues into my next point. I saw a lot of people, um, I shouldn't say a lot because I think that a lot of this was being shared in jest. Uh, there was a New York Post headline, blame Canada with a question mark. And I saw a lot of people resharing it. And part of it could have been because the sub headline was kind of funny. I forget what it was, but basically they they did E-H instead of A for some <laughs> pun. Yeah. Um, I can't stand the New York Post. I absolutely loathe that paper. Um, <laughs> but they do have good back page headlines. I will give them that. Um this is a tough one because like you can't blame Canada for something that was really out of Canada's control. And I saw a lot of people saying, Oh, thanks Canada for these wildfires. Like maybe that was in jest, like I suggested earlier, but, but maybe not. And if that's the case, we got to remember this isn't, you know, us against Canada. This is the world against the fossil fuel industry that has gotten us to this point that we're seeing hundreds of wildfires get out of control at the beginning of wildfire season in Canada. Like this is, this is unprecedented. Yeah. And like to say like, oh, like we're, we're the U S we don't have this problem. We don't have this issue. Look at, look at California, look at Oregon last year. Look at like, yeah. uh, even Seattle last year. It's not, this is not just like a Canada issue. This is not something that they are like in a vacuum. The only ones experiencing this. Yeah. We have it here. If you live on the, if you live on the West coast, you're very used to having wildfires. So yeah, absolutely. And, and my last point that I wanted to just get off is hopefully direct experience is going to lead to action because you and I probably make this point every single time something comes up where like it shouldn't take X issue being on your doorstep for you to care. Yeah. But for a lot of people, that's what it takes. So maybe experiencing wildfire smoke in New York, which is not something that we're used to, is going to change the mind of some people. And I know that that wildfire smoke went down to D.C., extended out into the Ohio Valley, into the Midwest. I'm talking about, for me, living in New York, experiencing it firsthand. But that's not to say that other people didn't also experience this very, very traumatic experience almost. It was like yeah. the twilight zone. So I'm, I'm really hoping that some people who who were open-minded to the idea of, of action towards climate change and have whether it's the monetary pull or the political pull to do something, maybe experiencing this is that that moment for them where they go, you know what? It's time for me to do something. Yeah. And that's my optimistic take on this. Yeah. I like it. I prefer it. 
<laughs> All right, let's move on to our next story from The Hill, where Saul Albion writes, fungi may offer jaw-dropping solution to climate change. How about that? Last week, a study published in Current Biology found that fungi sequester around one-third of the world's annual fossil fuel emissions. Fungi had not previously been factored into carbon modeling, conservation, and restoration very much, according to Katie Field, who's one of the co-authors and a professor of biology at the University of Sheffield. This article explains how sequestration for fungi works, and it's actually really, really interesting in my opinion, because the fungi behave more closely to an animal than to a plant in that it needs to find food and use chemicals to break that food down instead of what plants do, which is just absorb sunlight, absorb carbon, and turn that into sugar. Root fungi will provide plants with nutrients in exchange for the sugars made by plants during photosynthesis. Since the plants make sugar from the carbon they extract from the air, fungi create a sort of carbon bank when taking those sugars from plants. Humans have impacted fungal networks through agriculture, mining, and industry. Because of that human development, the United Nations estimates that 90% of the topsoil layer where most vegetation and fungi grow could be at risk by 2050. So one caveat to this study is that it notes how we don't know how stable the carbon stored in fungi is, and that means some carbon might break down and return into the soil for further sequestration. Some might be released into plants as they grow, which again is furthering that sequestration. Some might just be released into the atmosphere as a fungal waste product. But the article ends by stating that the ancient life support systems in our soil are important. And, and fungi, the fungal network, is one of those ancient life support systems. We have more evidence that fungi are crucial to our planet's health as a result of this study. So really, really exciting update. Yeah, for sure. Who knew that fungi could be so strong? <laughs> Not me. I, I was waiting for you to chime in there with like a, a quick fungi joke. I don't, I don't know why. Yeah, it's, it's crazy Like to think that that topsoil layer is going to be at risk by 2050. Like, Jesus Christ, like we are going to have some major issues um, with food insecurity and mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So yeah, definitely a, a scary story, but still really cool. Yeah, and, and to your point there, it's really important to note that fungi is part of that network. So I'm sorry, it's part of that topsoil layer. So yes, this is going to lead to issues with food insecurity if topsoil is not protected, but this is also going to lead to an issue with the carbon that's being stored by that fungi. So protecting topsoil is going to become one of those really increasingly important issues. Yeah. And I'm glad that the article pointed that out. I'm glad that the study pointed that out. I, I'm honestly just feeling very hopeful right now after having read this, because even if let's say fungi does not sequester carbon as stably or as successfully as plants do, and it starts to release it into the atmosphere, maybe a little bit sooner than a plant would or sooner than, than a, grouping of vegetation wood. Yeah. Any sort of carbon sequestration helps. And it's awesome that we now found something that is going to be able to, or has been able to sequester a third of our fossil fuel emissions. Like this is really, really encouraging news. I don't think this is the thing you're going to read and be like, Oh, climate change is over. We did it. Don't worry. Mushrooms are taking <laughs> care of us. Yeah. But again, like we say, every time we talk about a new, scientific update or environmental update as it relates to climate change, it's an important piece of the most important puzzle we've ever had to solve. So not the answer, but really, really exciting support coming our way from fungi. Yeah, for sure. Before we move on, what's your favorite mushroom dish? Um, oh, 
That's so hard. That's almost impossible. I'm just going to say like, uh, yeah, chicken marsala. I think that's got to be it. That's that's so far up there for me. I absolutely love marsala, but I think oyster mushrooms are my favorite mushroom. Mm. So I would say any sort of pasta with oyster mushrooms mixed in is nice. like a little cheat code for me. Good one. I almost said mushroom risotto, but I decided not Ooh. to. I, I pulled away at the last moment. That is honestly two amazing dishes, but... Um, Yeah. All right. Let's move on to this week's environmental policy roundup. A group of environmentalists in Montana have sought out to set a precedent throughout the U.S. by bringing a 12-year-old case to trial over whether the government's duty to protect citizens extends to climate change and a healthy, livable climate. Their testimony will reportedly discuss how wildfire smoke, heat, and drought have been a detriment to Montanans' mental and physical health and will continue to do so for the youth of the state. This comes just two weeks after the state passed a fossil fuel-friendly measure for development. General Motors announced last week that its electric vehicles will begin to use the type of plugs created by Tesla after striking a deal that pushes Tesla's plugs closer to becoming the standard across the electric vehicle industry. This will give Ford and General Motors EV drivers access to more chargers that have a reputation for being reliable compared to competitors. Some worry that this could lead to Tesla overwhelming its competition in an industry that is growing really quickly. Arizona is considering a $5 billion plan to desalinate seawater from Mexico in order to fight the water shortage in Phoenix. Earlier in June, we spoke about how Phoenix does not have enough water to continue expanding. Environmentalists will counter this by saying that the state should have fewer lawns, fewer swimming pools, and frankly, fewer houses. Not us one year ago trying to solve uh, the water crisis by uh, desalinating <laughs> seawater. And here they are in Arizona, literally considering a $5 billion plan to do that. It's just hysterical. So what's interesting about that is like desalination is not a new topic by any means. Um, but this would be just a ridiculously long stretch of line that you're you're pulling the water from. So a lot of yeah. people are saying like, why are they going to pull it all the way from Mexico when like you could just reduce water consumption by doing gravel or rocks or pebbles or whatever sand as your, instead of your, your lawn. Um, so it it just comes down to like some people are going to need to get comfortable with abandoning the status quo and moving to something that is better for everyone. Yeah. And in this case, If you live in Phoenix, maybe reconsider the Kentucky bluegrass. Yes, because it doesn't belong. Just doesn't look right. Does not look right at all. Looks so fake. No, I was going to say, it reminds me of um, that movie that just came out with Florence Pugh and Harry Styles. Oh, don't worry, darling. Yeah, yeah, that was it. That was it. Nice. Oh my gosh, two people absolutely stand. That was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Something I wanted to bring up real quick is just about the Ford uh, General Motors and Tesla deal. My concern with this is I just really hope that some company doesn't come in and become the Apple of of EV chargers where every single smartphone is moving towards the same chargers. And then Apple's like, no, you know, we're going to stick with ours. That way you have to buy an Apple product. So yeah, hopefully EV chargers kind of become universal in that whatever car you get, you have access to quick, reliable charging from whatever type of plug is available. Yeah. That's something we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. As always, those three stories are in your show notes. If you want to read any of them for some more detail, we are going to take a quick break and we have two more stories for you when we get back. 
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Valo Alta. Valo Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, too late now to save Arctic summer ice, climate scientists find, by Damian Carrington of The Guardian. This is the sort of story that reminds me why it's important to feel optimistic about the fungi story we talked about in the first half of the show, but it's not going to solve climate change. So this article is about some studies that have unfortunately shown we are trending towards no Arctic sea ice in the summers by sometime in the 2030s, which is about a decade before previous projections. Even if greenhouse gas emissions are sharply reduced before then, or, you know, let's just put out in some perfect world, we flip a switch and tomorrow the entire world stops emitting all greenhouse gases. The lingering nature of the emissions that happened yesterday that are happening today while you're listening to this show mean that we are not going to be able to save Arctic summer sea ice quickly. As I mentioned, this is about a decade earlier than the previous projections, which were found in the 20, 2019 IPCC report, I believe is when they said 2040s. But this study goes as far as to say that 90% of the Arctic ice melting is the result of human-caused global warming. Arctic sea ice in the summers has decreased by roughly 13% since satellite recordings began in 1979. Typically, Arctic sea ice is at its lowest point in September, and the article mentions September 2021, recording the second lowest sea ice ever. Several scientists quoted in the article said that it is too late to save the Arctic sea ice, which is another alarm bell for what scientists have been saying for decades. Professor Dirk Knotts of the University of Hamburg said that this is the first major Earth system that we will lose because of climate change. So something from the article that I want to highlight is when Carrington writes... Faster melting of Arctic sea ice leads to a vicious cycle of more heating because the dark ocean exposed as ice melts absorbs more heat from the sun. The result is faster warming in the Arctic and scientists have increasing evidence that this is weakening the jet stream and leading to more extreme weather events in North America, Europe, and Asia. So that quote to me jumps out as this is just a vicious feedback loop that's going to be felt globally. Like this isn't something that and, and granted, I, if you're listening to this podcast, you are not the type of person most likely that's going to be like, oh, man, that sucks about the Arctic. I'm good, though. Like, yeah, I don't think people listening to this show are going to be thinking that way. But there are people who think that way. You know, like, why should I care about the Arctic when I live in wherever? This is not just bad news for the Arctic. This is bad news for the global weather systems. Yeah, this is bad news for each individual that is going to be impacted in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, it's just like so annoying to keep getting these stories and like have nothing change. Yeah. You know, like we constantly are getting stories 
about like that should be like, oh my goodness. Like, what are we going to do? This is 2030 we're talking about. This isn't like 2040. This isn't like 20 years even. This is less than 10 years. Could be seven years mm-hmm. by the time that we're, we have no Arctic ice in the summer. It's just wild. It's just insane. Yeah, and I think what's tough is something that, you know, a lot of the scientists in this article pointed out. They've been saying this. You know, you mentioned, I think it was on last week's show, that there was that scientist in 1977 that said, Fossil yep. fuel emissions are leading to climate change. Yeah. There have been scientists for 25, plus, actually it's 2023. So what, 30 almost years putting together these IPCC reports, which are just international groups of scientists coming together from all over the world. This isn't some like crazy agenda to, to keep people out of power or whatever. This is just yeah. a bunch of scientists coming together and saying, this is what the science is saying. Yeah. And for what, 25 of the last 30 years, people have been like, sick, sounds good. Like, we're not going to do anything about that. And now it seems in the last five years, people have been like, yeah, like we need to start doing this. We need to start acting upon it. And, and I'm sure all of those nations, you know, small island nations out in the South Pacific that have been attending UN conferences on climate change who have been sounding this alarm bell for 20 some odd years are probably like, great. Like, I'm glad you you came along, but what about when we've been saying this? So it's just a really tough situation where like international politics, the, the, the power dynamic in it, where the countries that we need to do something about climate change are unfortunately the ones who like can afford to delay and can afford to not care as much because while we're experiencing wildfire smoke, there are people in in Bangladesh, in Tuvalu, in the Maldives who are like, well, my home is going to be underwater in six years. Yeah. So I don't know, man, it's just, it's so frustrating for us. And like, imagine the, instead of feeling frustrated, just feeling desperate and feeling angry at the industrialized world for, for not doing something sooner when we have almost 50 years of, of mounting evidence saying, if we don't get off the fossil fuel economy, things are going to get really bad. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I don't know what people think we're going to do. Like, do we think we're just going to, okay, we're going to lose Bangladesh. All right. So all those people have to go to, you know, whatever, Turkey, something like that. We're going to run out of land eventually. Yeah. You know, climate refugees are going to be the next like huge talking point. Yeah. I don't know when, you know, I, I hope that I hope we don't start to lose a lot of these places because like every single data point we're talking about here is, is a family, is a, a person, is a country. Like, yeah, these are real people who are impacted. These aren't just numbers. So we are going to have millions of climate refugees and every single one of them brings something to the table. And I know for a fact that it's not going to be as simple as, hey, I can't live in my home anymore because of drought, wildfire, food insecurity, whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Like, we'll take care of you. Come in. This is on us. It's now our opportunity to help. Let's not be naive here. Like, it's it's not going to go that smoothly. And that's no so unfortunate. You'll have fight back up the wazoo. Yeah. All right, let's get into our last quick hit of the week, which is titled Endangered Red Wolf Families Released in Eastern North Carolina for ABC News. 
Closing this out with some happy news. Two families of red wolves were released in eastern North Carolina recently as part of the Red Wolf Recovery Program. Separate areas of the Pocasin Lakes National Wildlife Refuge now have two new families that have moved in to restore some balance to the ecosystem with a native predator. A female red wolf from the Akron Zoo and a male red wolf from the Endangered Wolf Center in Missouri and their three pups make up one of the families. The other family is a pair of wolves from the Endangered Wolf Center and their four pups. The article says the recovery group hopes that the red wolves will continue to raise their families in the general areas to help increase the numbers of the endangered animals in eastern North Carolina. So let's get out in front of this one the same way we did with the story about the cheetah cubs in in India a couple weeks ago. This is not something where we're going to say amazing red wolves are back. We did it. Yeah. Conservation is an ongoing series of small battles. This is a huge, huge win. But this doesn't mean that the red wolf population is is fully recovered. So, like they said, let's hope that those families continue to stay there and continue to grow. And who knows, maybe maybe pups from one of the families will start to interact with other pups from the other family and start to diversify that gene pool. But yeah, this is really exciting, happy news for a, a keystone species in in that ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. And these things are so damn cute. I like it like yeah. breaks my heart to think about the the cheetahs um passing away uh last week or two weeks ago. Yeah, I really hope that that does not happen here. Um yeah, they're they're just really cute. You should check it out. Yeah, so the article that we linked actually has a video that Nick's referencing there. They are absolutely adorable. If you <laughs> want to see some cute wolf pups, go click that link. And look, if wolf pups and wolf conservation is something that interests you, Next month, we have an absolutely amazing guest interview with Martha Hunt Handler of the Wolf Conservation Center, which is located over in South Salem, New York, not too far from where Nick and I grew up. Um, That will be airing the first or second week of July. I'm kind of forgetting the schedule, but awesome interview. Already recorded it. Uh, Martha has a book out about wolves. It's such a cool interview that I'm excited for you to hear. Yes, I can't wait. I'm stoked. Really, really close to home and um, literally. (laughs) Yeah, Martha was great. So we're really excited for it. All right. You know, with that, let's close out today's episode of TPT. We will be back on Monday for this month's interview with special guest Beth McDaniel. Until then, please go give the show a five star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Chanus to produce our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear more of your stuff? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.